From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Anne Linder isn't prone to hyperbole. Her work is focused on the intersection of animal law and criminal law. And since she's a lawyer, a lot of that work is legalistic. She writes legislative analyses and policy papers, and her words are meticulous and cautious. But when Linder was recently asked to describe the risks that American industrial farms and the fur trade and the import of exotic pets might have on creating infectious disease outbreaks in humans, the word she used was staggering. Staggering that the nation has no comprehensive strategy to mitigate the dangers posed by these practices. Staggering that diseases that spread from animals to humans, which is often thought of as something that mainly happens in other nations, is likely happening in the United States as well. But experts say the risk of zoonotic spillover isn't confined to a particular geography. It can happen anywhere that there is frequent interactions between humans and animals. That means animal markets. It means dog breeders and animal rehabilitation centers. It means hunting and trapping and livestock auctions. It includes backyard chickens and circuses and petting zoos. But most people and most policymakers haven't given this much, if any, thought. So Linder says we can turn on the lights and face these risks or just continue taking comfort in the dark. Ann Linder is an associate director of Harvard University's Animal Law and Policy Program, and the lead author of a new report on animal markets and zoonotic diseases in the United States. Ann Linder, welcome. Thanks. I'm so happy to be here with you, Matthew. Ann, you grew up in the Midwest. Tell me about your relationship to animals as a child. So animals have always had sort of a captivating interest in, in my in my life. My mom worked as a backcountry ranger for the National Park Service for a while. So in our house, we were always, you know, sort of um, had orphan animals running around the kitchen, dogs, cats, raccoons, everything. Um, so Wait, raccoons? <laughs> yes, uh, one raccoon at least, or two, I guess. Maybe there were two raccoons, but... um. Tell me about, I, tell me about the raccoon. Uh, so, she, well, her name was Amy, but she later turned out to be a boy, so it, it was maybe not the right name, but that's the name we gave her. And uh, her mother was hit by a car, and so we heard sort of these sort of crying noises from the big tree in our backyard and our neighbor who was an architect had this 50-foot ladder that he put up on the tree crawled up there and then two of the raccoons had had drowned but Amy was um, still alive so it was an interesting kind of um, upbringing and and one that I couldn't really imagine my life without but I've always had this interest in animals and they've been sort of uh, uh, just a constant fascination for me ever since okay so you had this interesting childhood that was full of all these encounters with animals. And then, as I understand it, when you were an undergraduate, you worked for a wildlife rehabilitation center in rural Kansas for a summer. What did you learn there? (laughs) I mean, I learned a lot. I I think mostly I, I just gained a huge amount of respect for people who are working with limited resources kind of on the front lines of so many of these challenges. It was just a really scrappy operation. They didn't have AC. You know, there's animals all over the place and and people really working in creative ways and doing the best they can to manage 
some of the problems that we've created as humans as far as uh, the impact that we have on other species. So that was a really sort of eye-opening experience for me. Through all of these experiences growing up and then this this experience when you were a young college student, you were building a passion for animal welfare. But you said before you were kind of surprised to discover there was actually a way to merge that passion with a professional career. Yeah, I think this was, you know, I found myself in college trying to sort of construct a passion because it seems like that's what you're supposed to do. But really, I think it was about sort of realizing the passion that I already possessed um, and understanding that it might not be easy, but there are careers in this space and I could have an impact sort of on these issues that I care about most. And was that after you decided to go into law that you kind of realized that there was a place where you could merge these two things? No. So I I think like the animal piece came first for me. So I knew that I, I this was what I cared about and I wanted to work in this field. And then I, I went and, and pursued a master's degree in, in animals and public policy. And it was during that year that I applied to law school. And for me, that was about sort of marrying like what I care about with what what skills do I have? What can I bring to the table? How can I have the biggest impact in this space? And at some point you began focusing very intently on live animal markets. Why did that become such a interest for you? So I was brought on in, in my current role to lead this project that was kind of conceived of by our faculty director, Kristen Still, in the wake of COVID. And there were so many kind of questions swirling around these sites, these live animal markets. Um, but really, we were kind of didn't understand even what that meant sort of as, as a public um, and what these sites do, what other functions they pose. And it was really being framed as an over there problem. But we wanted to look sort of introspectively at what we were doing in our own backyards and how we as Americans use animals in ways that can drive zoonotic risk. Hmm. Was there a moment, in, like an aha moment, when you recognized that these markets, which in the United States are part of the production chain for 10 billion animals a year, were a key vector for zoonotic spillover of diseases? Yeah. So, I mean, I I think for me, the aha moment really came because originally we had scoped this project very narrowly to look at what some people would call wet markets or live animal food markets where animals are stored alive and then slaughtered on site, usually for, for human consumption. But I think in doing that, as we started to look in, at these sites and, and understand the supply chains that connect them, we realized these are really just sort of one node in this larger tangled lattice of the ways in which humans use animals um, that can drive zoonotic risk. So they're important sites, and they've proven that historically, but, but they're really just one piece of this huge web. And so we started to look more broadly, and I think that's when things got really interesting. And you identified 36 distinct types of animal markets and supply chains in the United States. Give me, there's actually a really great graphic in this report that shows the flow of animals through U.S. markets. And this is everything from rodeos and petting zoos to camel farming, which is something that I did not know existed in the United States, and coyote and fox urine production, which also something I didn't know about, actual thing. Collectively, even if we're not talking about animal agriculture, these are industries worth tens of billions of dollars. 
Yeah, there's a huge amount of animals that that move through these different chains of of commerce here in the United States. And animals don't necessarily stay neatly in in one of those industries. Often they'll bounce around from a roadside zoo to the exotic pet trade or or back again. So, So animals are constantly moving. They're constantly in flux. These different supply chains, which seem separate at first, are really just kind of this intertangled web. But we use animals in a wide variety of ways here in the United States. And that diversity, I think, is one of our major findings. We talk about 36 markets here, but that is by no means exhaustive. And we were still coming across industries we never even heard of three years into this study. What was so I I mentioned a couple of that surprised me. What were some of the ones that surprised you? So one of the ones that I've come across recently is faux wildlife photography. Uh, so I, I didn't know that this was something that happened, but you can can basically pay to have someone release a, an animal like a clouded leopard or, or whatever kind of animal you want to photograph into an enclosure that looks natural. Um, and you can kind of take pictures of it as if you were on sort of a, a safari in, in the place where that animal is native and have pretty pictures to show your friends. Um, but ultimately, those animals are, are kept in captivity and, and sort of brought out. For this industry, this is, this is like the pinnacle of 2023, the fact that this it industry is. exists. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that we weren't surprised to learn about it, I think, is also maybe a reflection of, of what you're mentioning. But yes. Yeah. So people use animals in like the most intimate and artificial <laughs> of ways. And we do that here in the United States better than almost anywhere else in the world. And all of these various industries are potential pathways by which we have and we will continue to see the transmission of diseases that include new strains of influenza and coronaviruses and retroviruses and salmonella and brucella bacteria, among others. Most of these industries have a risk of transmission of some of these diseases, and some of these industries have a risk of transmission of of most of these types of diseases that you and your collaborators noted are considered pathogens of high priority. Yeah, that's definitely true. And and I think, you know, just to, to give one example, if you look at something like the exotic pet trade, you know, we're bringing in hundreds, if not thousands of different species of wildlife. And so if we're talking about what types of pathogens those animals might carry, it's almost an endless catalog of different potential viruses and, and bacteria and others that we're exposing ourselves to. And and even those niche industries that you mentioned can carry real risk. We saw MPOX was first brought to the U.S. through the trade in exotic rodents, for example. It spilled over from pet prairie dogs. So even these niche industries can carry really dangerous pathogens pathogens and you know that we're familiar with and others that haven't been documented or haven't been documented here. You wrote that there are many as many exotic pets in the United States as there are cats and dogs. That shocked me. Yeah, and so I think one of the things that is important to know in so many of these industries is we we lack really basic data. So trying to get an estimate for how many exotic pets in the United States was something we struggled with because the estimates 
vary by the tens of millions. That's how little information we have about how many of these animals they are, where they're going. We just don't know very much about them. And oftentimes they're kind of kept out of sight in backyards and basements and, and you know, are really not something that we interact with out on the street. Uh, there's some that are highly visible, like lions and things like that. But there's also people who, who may have 3,000 reptiles in their basement. So you wrote in this report that there's this well-worn pattern in the face of emerging diseases whereby nations assign blame elsewhere, ignoring the risks that lie closer to home. And when I read that, I thought, yeah, that's the framing I typically employ. When I think of infectious diseases, it's always in my head that this is something that starts somewhere else. But then as I'm going through this report, I'm realizing that there are all of these dozens and dozens, and as you say, this was not even an exhaustive list, these many, many places here where this transmission from animals to humans, which accounts for like 75% of newly identified viruses, transmissible diseases, there's so many opportunities right here in our own backyards, literally our own backyards for this to happen. Yeah, I th- I think, you know, if people don't take anything else away from this research, I hope that that, that is a point that sticks, that far from being an over there problem, this is something that we are contributing to here in the U.S. on an immense scale. So I think, you know, in, in that sense, it would really be the height of hubris for us to to think that we're not contributing to to these global public health risks when we use and consume more animals here in the United States than almost any other country on earth. We processed 10 billion land animals for food in 2022, the highest number ever recorded here in the U.S., and we're the world's largest importer of live wildlife as well. And so this is not just theoretical, right? There's evidence that the United States has been the source of newly created contagious diseases. There was evidence that swine flu had previously been transmitted from animals to humans in a market in Minnesota, right? Yes, that's true. Um, And I I think, you know, I'll have to go back to my notes for this, but we I think we're responsible for sort of more new variations of swine flu in the last 10 years than any other country. And a lot of those came from state and county agricultural fairs. And many of the people who were infected were younger adults and children who were handling those animals. Um, So there is real risk and it can be found even in sort of like the most mundane and unexpected places here in the United States. This is not something we should or should want to be leading the world in, right? (laughs) No. (laughs) There is all of these ways in which we sort of create these barriers between the idea of this starting here and this this starting in other places. Uh, Wet markets. Can we talk about that word wet market for a moment? Because... This is a word that we almost universally attribute to something foreign and often unregulated. But is there a very big difference between wet markets in China and what we call live animal markets in the United States? You know, we really do sort of have almost this, you know, the same basic framework here in the United States. Usually they're limited to a slightly smaller range of species, but we do have 
markets here in the U.S. where you can go buy live wildlife that is um, is killed on site and, and sold to consumers for food as well. Often in the U.S., we're talking about live poultry markets or some of these markets also process larger animals like swine. But there's, I think, 84 live animal markets in New York City alone. So this is Wait, not 84 that- in New York City. I think that is the estimate that we got from um, from the USDA. So, so these are not rare, and you know, by some counts, we're moving almost twenty five million animals through live animal food markets in the Northeast alone each year. So, um, so they're not small, and they do exist here. Um, we don't, you know, refer to them as wet markets, but but they are functionally the same as far as disease risk, um, and and that's just a different word that we use. In this report, you asked two questions. Uh, one was, does the practice of this specific market, and this is the, the 36 markets that you looked at, pose a risk of spillover? And then the second is, is regulation sufficient to mitigate that risk? And in a nutshell, in pretty much every one of these industries, the answer to the first question was, yes, there is a risk. And the answer to the second question was, no, the regulation doesn't adequately manage that risk very well. Is that right? Did I encapsulate that okay? Yeah. I mean, I don't think we looked at any industry where we felt like there is truly no risk because anytime you have humans interacting with animals, there's a risk for zoonotic spillover. There's some markets that we considered much higher risk than others, but there was a risk across the board. Let's talk about a few more of these industries and where you identified the risks. We, we've we all seen that statement at the end of the movie credits that notes the animals weren't harmed in the making of the film. <laughs> but that doesn't mean those animals weren't a potential vector for disease. Un- unpack that for me. Yeah. I, I mean, I think this kind of speaks to a larger pattern that, that we observe where often the kind of public-facing parts of these different industries are are better regulated or appear more regulated than the industries actually are. So, for example, with animals in film, um, yes, we might be monitoring those animals fairly closely while they're on set interacting with folks, but those animals, you know, the other 364 days of the year are living probably in someone's basement and interacting with a whole range of different species and maybe transmitting pathogens from one species to the next or to their handlers or keepers. And so we're really sort of only see just a the tip of the iceberg oftentimes with these different industries when, when we think about them. Let's talk about bat guano. This is a big industry in the United States as well. Yeah, and so bat guano is kind of um, a strange industry in that the animals are are truly wild. We're not keeping bats in in captivity as pets, but we are going into their caves um, and harvesting guano to be used as as fertilizer or for other purposes. Um, And and guano is the nice thing that we call bat poop, right? Yes, yes. Um, and so um, and so we're going into those caves and collecting um, the bat's waste and then using it for, for various purposes. And bat guano and bats in particular can transmit a wide range of different pathogens to people. And all of these industries are lightly regulated, if regulated at all. What do you attribute that to? Is it just the fact that there is... A lot of just sort of historical inertia working against us. Have we not caught up to the reality of what the 
potential dangers are? Are there vested interests? What's going on? I, I think it's a combination of all of those things and the fact that these industries are probably evolving um, more quickly in many cases than the regulatory frameworks that govern them. So if we think about, for example, something like the way animals are used in social media, we don't really have a toolkit as far as how to how to regulate that kind of a risk. But um, but oftentimes, you know, if you think about a big industry like industrial animal agriculture, there's very strong financial interests, very active um, trade groups that that are trying to to prevent any additional regulation of that industry. And then a lot of these other sort of smaller niche industries, you know, um, we talked about it on this call, but but they don't have the kind of visibility with regulators um, that we might hope that they did um, in order to address those risks. You know, we talked to some officials and asked them about industries that they'd never heard of or that they first heard of when the animals in those industries began contracting COVID-19. So I think it's a combination of, of all of the above. If you are a lawmaker and you've never heard of the bat guano industry or the uh, predator urine industry, there's no reason why you would say, hey, we need to regulate this. But this report, which is making the rounds, um, is landing on lawmakers' desks now and the desks of their staff. I know it's only been a short time, but are you starting to hear interest from people who are in a position to start the process of better regulating these markets? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, our, our hope um, is that this this large report doesn't sort of just sit and collect dust, but, but is actually operationalized and used. And as you said, we've done a lot of that kind of legwork here in terms of scoping these different industries and, and trying to identify the risks this that they do pose. Um, and so our hope is that this is something that will be used both by the NGO community and also by lawmakers as they're looking to try and take practical steps, of which there are many we could take to reduce our risk as a nation. So so yes, we're starting to, to have those kinds of conversations, which is exciting um, to get this out, out into the world so that it can be read and used. Let's talk about those practical steps, but maybe in sort of an impractical, a hypothetical way. Let's say I gave you a magic wand and I said, you have the power to enact one policy for one of these markets that's going to have, presumably, you want to have the greatest effect with one move. What's the first thing that you would do? Oh, man. One thing that would make a huge difference would be to get a better handle on live wildlife imports coming into the country. This was something we saw time and again, is that that there's a huge amount of animals, by some estimates, 220 million live wild animals that are coming into the United States each year. And many of those are being admitted without any sort of health or safety check, sometimes without being visually seen by anyone. And so I think that is something that we really need to address because those animals are coming in and bringing with them pathogens from wherever they originated, anything they may have picked up along the way, and then they're going on to live in people's homes as exotic pets or to be used in biomedical research labs or in roadside zoos or all of these different industries. So many of them are fueled by this wildlife trade of which the U.S. is a really big player. I want to go back to this thing you told the New York Times recently, that we can 
turn on the lights and face these risks or just continue taking comfort in the dark. And I wonder if you can describe what it was like for you, how you saw the world, the lights were coming on, on this really enormous problem, the staggering, as you said, problem. So, I mean, I think, you know, this this was something that grew, you know, gradually. Um, but when we started to look at the scale of these different industries, when we tried to get estimates for the number of animals involved and and things like that, it really just became clear that we were looking at something that was far larger than any of us realized, even as people who work in the space, who work in academics and and study these things. And so my hope is that that's one of the contributions that that we've tried to make here is is to show in a comprehensive way, kind of the diversity and scale animal use and of threats posed by that animal use here in our own backyards. That's Ann Linder. She's an associate director of Harvard University's Animal Law and Policy Program and the lead author of a new report on animal markets and zoonotic diseases in the United States. Ann Linder, thank you. Thanks so much, Matthew. I appreciate your time. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 1030 and on KCPW at 10 on Thursday and noon on Sunday. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by public radio listeners like you. So if you're a donor to Utah Public Radio or KCPW in Salt Lake City, we want to thank you. And if you're not, why not? Head over to upr.org and click on the donate link and make sure in the comments you let them know that you're a supporter of this program. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.